So uh, let's pray, and we'll get right into Genesis 2 and 3. Our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, Lord, and we just humble our hearts before you now. And as we receive your word, Lord, we know that you said this is our true food. And so we ask for nourishment from you tonight, Lord, that we would grow. Lord, that would be a little bit different than we were when we came in because we heard from you tonight. So, Lord, we honor you and respect you as one who nurtures our lives, changes our lives. So, Lord, we welcome this opportunity tonight to gather together as your people, to read your word together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> so, Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to begin. And I'm going to begin uh, in verse, <coughs> excuse me. I'm going to begin in verse 15. The first 14 verses are kind of a retelling of the creation story. Uh, some people like to create controversy over it being a different creation story. It is by far not a different creation story. It's simply rehashing some events of chapter 1 to give us Adam and Eve as the highlight and the center point of uh, the creation story. So it's simply setting us up to introduce Adam and Eve to us. So we'll pick that up in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Two quick points on these verses. Point number one is you see that it says the Lord God took the man. So he's already created and he took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden. In other words, Adam was not created in the garden, was he? So if he's not created in the garden, he's created in the uncultivated part of the world because the garden is the cultivated part. That, what do we call the uncultivated part of the world? Wilderness, right? It's the wild. It's the wilderness, right? The wilderness. So Adam's created in the wilderness and the woman is created where then? In the garden. Don't we kind of resemble our creative spots where we're created from? Okay. Um, you know, I remember several summers ago, I don't know how many summers ago now, Dinah and I are discussing where to go on vacation. And I'm like, I'd like to go get a cabin near, near the river in the mountains somewhere and just hang out in nature. And she said, but the flower festival's at Epcot this year. Okay. So we came home with great and tremendous stories of flowers at Epcot. Okay, but she was, she was representing that she was created in a garden. It's where she was made. And I was represented that I was created in the wilderness. It's where I was made. So um, I just thought that was pretty reflective of what we see here. What we also see here is this. The tremendous freedom that God has offered us at our creation. Normally what gets highlighted here is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what does it say before that? It says, of every tree in the garden you may freely eat. Right? So I don't know how many trees are in that garden, but certainly all of them but one is, they're invited to eat from, correct? Now, I get asked all the time, and my gosh, I hope I answered this right, because I get asked all the time, why did he even bother to put that tree there? Why? Okay, now, 
God is a God of love, correct? Now, if God is a God of love and we have no opportunity to rebel from that love, we have no opportunity to reject that love, then does that love really mean anything at all? If I give somebody a love potion and they drink it and then they confess their love to me for the rest of their lives, wouldn't it be weird if I was honored by that? Wouldn't it be weird if they had to say they love me and I said, oh, that's so sweet, I'm so honored that you love me. The honor is gone in love if it's not freely offered, correct? So if God is a God of love and he creates us and we're, we don't have an opportunity to not love him, then would our love for him mean anything? No. It's because we can not love him that when we do love him, there's tremendous honor in that. So that tree represents everything that gives us the dignity of being free creatures created in his free image. He is a free being, and we are image bearers of that free being, so therefore we have to have freedom. And if there's no opportunity for failure, there's no dignity or honor in obedience. The freedom is what brings dignity to our lives. So the tree has to be there for these purposes. And the tree serves as something that we can grow through and, and mature through, that there's a temptation that can be resisted and that helps us in our, in our development and our growth. So the tree is there. But God gives us this tremendous freedom that of all the trees of the garden we can eat freely, but of that tree we may not even eat of it because the day we eat of it we will surely die. Now, did Adam and Eve eat of it? And how old did they live to be? In the 900s, right? So what happened to the day you eat of it, you'll surely die? Okay, I can't hear what you're saying right now, but I bet you it has something to do with they died spiritually, right? They died spiritually, and I think that's right. I think they died spiritually. I personally believe, and I can't say that I can back this, I can back it up in Scripture a little bit, as long as I'm interpreting it correctly, but I believe as we were created in the image-bearing of a triune God, part of that image-bearing is that we are body, mind, and soul. Okay, we're body, mind, and body, I should say this, body, soul, and spirit. We're triune. And what would have died in Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit? Spirit. So Jesus will come and say, you must be born again of the spirit. Okay? So if that's right, then that means when they fell and they died spiritually, they were no longer in a Trinitarian image. They are now just a binary image, right? And so it's being saved that, reunite, that restores that full triune image bearing to all three aspects there of body, soul, and spirit. So this... Um, so, so I, I agree that they would have died spiritually there, but I also think this, that they were able to live past their sin that they were told they would surely die the day that they did it because how this chapter will end. This chapter will end with an animal dying and they're going to be covered in the skin of that animal. And we see that God accepts the death of this animal in their place. And I think that's the bigger picture of this chapter is God allowed something to die in their place. They're allowed to live 
because God allowed a substitute. Now, isn't that going to be God's heart throughout, not just the entire Old Testament through the sacrificial system, but with the New Testament, why, why does Hebrews say you can boldly enter the throne of grace now? You can boldly enter into God's throne room, which was the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest can enter and only once a year if he brought blood in there with him. But now why can we freely enter? And our freedom to enter is symbolized by the veil tearing in two at Christ's death, correct? So why can we do that? Because we always carry around with us through our faith the blood of Jesus. Somebody died in our place. Just like we see here, we're going to see here in Genesis chapter 2. So, <clears throat> so now, verse 18 says, And the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. So with all the, it is good, it is good, it is good, and then it is very good that we get in Genesis 1, we finally get the first not good of the Bible. And this is before sin even. So what's not good that there's no sin involved with it, it's just simply not good, is that the man is alone. So he says, I will make a helper comparable to him. So what we should anticipate in verse 19 is the creation of Eve. But we do not get the creation of Eve in the next verse. Instead, we read, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. So now he's promised a helper comparable to him, and he's brought in front of him the animal kingdom, probably two by two, because sometimes the male and the female have different names, correct? What kind of animals does a male have a different name than a female? Okay, again, I hear the, the babble. <laughs> All right, there you go, lion, lioness, a goose, and no, <laughs> geese is plural, okay? <laughs> Geese is not female. Gander, right? Goose and a gander? <laughs> Goose and geese. All right. All right. I'm going to stop there before more of this gets recorded of your answers. All right. And you're on permanent record for thinking geese is, is the female goose. All right. <laughs> True. That's why God didn't ask you. That's correct. All right. <laughs> All right. I got it. That was funny. All right. Now. Um, plus God has a reputation for bringing animals to man in pairs, doesn't he? Two by two. So perhaps he did it that way, and that's why they have uh, sometimes male and female different names. But he brings them to him. Why? Because he tells Adam, I'm going to make a helper comparable to you. And how is Adam going to know that she's comparable to him unless he gets to see all the things that are not at all comparable to him? Okay, so as he sees these animals prayed in front of him, I'm sure he's great relieved that he only has to name them and not marry them, right? That, that, that uh, they're not comparable, and he's going to know that. And then when Eve is finally brought to him, can you imagine the appreciation that's going to be in his heart when he sees the woman after the hippos and the rhinos and all the other things, right? He's going to fully appreciate the woman. And it says... Um, the Lord God formed every beast of, beast of the field and bird of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Do you hear the anti-evolutionary statement here? Okay. We are not evolved animals. They are not comparable to humans. They are, we are not just an advanced stage of them 
There is no comparable nature to them and us. We are completely separated from the animal kingdom as image bearers of God, not as advanced people of the animal kingdom. And God caused, verse 21, oh, let me say this. Now, God is providing a, a, a bride for Adam. Oh, we'll read verse 21 first. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Now, the way God provides a bride for Adam we have to remember that in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul will say that Jesus is, is our bridegroom and the church is his bride, the believers are his bride, and marriage between a man and a woman is to symbolize the relationship and love that God has for his church and the relationship the church as a bride has to Jesus, right? Familiar with that, right? So marriage, when you get married, that's why it's important to do this in church. Because when you're getting married, you're promising to represent to the world how much God loves the church and how much the church is cared for by God. And so the, the, the bridegroom has a responsibility in that and the bride has a responsibility in that. And if people get married, there should be already this agreement that the man's going to represent Christ and the woman's going to represent the church and that relationship in marriage is going to help evangelize this world. As they look at your marriage, they're going to say, look how wonderful this couple is, and that's my relationship to my God, my, my goodness. Okay, that's what marriage is all about. Unfortunately, we make marriage about ourselves, right? So the first thing I tell a couple in premarital counseling is, I'll say to the guy, this isn't about you getting a wife. This is about you becoming a husband. It's a mindset you're to have. I'm becoming a husband and all that that entails, do you still want to get married? And I'll say to her, this is not, not about you getting a husband. This is about you becoming a wife and all of that that, that entails. Are you still willing to get married? And, um, and if so, then we're going to get a beautiful picture that God intended for this wedding ceremony that helps evangelize the wedding guests, quite frankly. Okay. All right, so the way that God brings a bride to Adam is the same way God provides a bride for his son, Jesus, the church. How so? Well, as we read, to form a bride for Adam, God will put Adam into a deep sleep. And even though Adam's totally innocent and has never sinned, God will wound his side. Wounding is supposed to be a sign of sin. But Adam's innocent. He never sinned, yet God wounds his side. And what comes from the side of Adam is used to form a bride. Adam is then woken up in a garden to behold and enjoy his new bride forever and ever. Likewise, John the Baptist will introduce Jesus as the bridegroom, and of course the church as the bride. And how does God provide this church bride for his son Jesus? Well, he will put his son Jesus into a deep sleep of death on a cross, where even though he's innocent and he's never sinned, he will have his side wounded by a Roman spear. And what comes from his side, the blood and the water that's reported to us by John, and when John reports that blood and water came out, he pauses in the storytelling to say, 
I'm a witness to that. I saw it. He's saying, it's a big deal that I saw the blood and the water come out of him. And Paul will say this, the blood purchases the church and the water cleanses her of all of her impurities. He directly relates it to the creation of the church, that blood and water. And then Jesus will be woken up in a garden, the garden tomb, to behold, in his, behold his new bride forever and ever, the church. Listen, do you see the connections and the harmony of this Bible? I was hoping for more, but okay. Yes, good. All right, good. It's, it's okay. All right. Amen. Hallelujah. We got to go Pentecostal though, sometimes here. All right. Now, here's what uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.2. He says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I espoused you to one husband that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. Does he see this relationship of the church and marriage? Yes, very, very clearly. Okay. All right, back to chapter 2. Verse 23, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones. Now remember, he just named the entire animal kingdom, correct? He saw every shape, size, and so forth. He saw animals with scales. He saw animals with feathers. He saw animals with fur. And now he says this when he sees the woman. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, Adam sees this incredible closeness of this woman in front of him and what he marvels at in this closeness is that she was actually taken from me. Okay, that's going to be extremely special now, isn't it? Your children are taken from your body and they're very, very special to you, right? So she's taken from the man. Now, there's a sense that they were closer before God took her, that somehow she existed in him, but she's taken from him and she's actually named from the man. It almost speaks of separation. But what reunites the man and the woman as one flesh again? Marriage. The two shall become one. So this separation period of being taken from the man is, is uh, undone or redone uh, by marriage where the two shall become one flesh again. Now, this word woman in, in uh, man in Hebrew is ish. Woman is isha, from man. So you have man and woman from man. And in all the civilizations in the world, in all the languages, they call their females in their language woman. So what are they actually saying about their females? They're from the man. And where, do they, where does that information come to us? This Bible. You, you see the authority? Okay? The, it, the whole world is using the biblical term for their females. Okay? It's like uh, time even. Uh, so, so why is a year as long as a year is? That's how long it takes the earth to take a lap around the sun, right? Why is a day a day? It's how long it takes for the earth to spin one rotation, correct? Why is a month a month? We're, we're charting the moon going around the earth, correct? But why is a week a week? Why is it seven days? There's nothing going on in space that's seven days. And the whole world goes by a seven-day week. Why? Our Bible. The credibility of our Bible, right? The seven-day week. All right. 
course, the days of the week are named after mythological gods, but still seven days. Now, all right. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, the man is doing the leaving here, right? The man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to one flesh. Galatians 4.4 4 says Jesus came as a man, came as a man. So he's to leave his father and his mother to be a bridegroom, right, and to have a bride. Well, where do we see this leaving in Scripture? Well, John 1.14. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He left his Father, right, to come to us. We also have Philippians 2, which says, You're to have this attitude in you that Christ also had in him, which was that even though he was equal with God, in heaven with God as an equal he became a man and, 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 and took the form of a man and took the form of a bondservant, even an obedient bondservant, obedient to even death. And not just any death, but death on a cross. Now the guys are like, are oh, you back to the marriage responsibility of a man, right? Just dying. No, this is not the marriage talk anymore, okay? This is, this is Jesus, when, when the Bible says the man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, what does that mean for all of us? It means Jesus left his heavenly throne, became a man in search of a bridegroom. In fact, many of his parables are about that very topic. Many of his parables are about wedding feasts, aren't they? And he'll say things like, there's this king who's throwing a wedding feast for his son. And then he'll start describing the wedding feast, like inviting all the guests and the guests that are right in the kingdom that they invite, they all make excuses because they won't, because and, and they don't come. Jesus is saying that to the Jews. That's you. You're invited, just not coming. And the king gets angry because they won't come. So he says, now go outside the kingdom into the alleys and the streetways and all of that and invite them. And they all come, the Gentiles. He's predicting the switch in economy from Jew to Gentile. But then one Gentile shows up and he does, he's not wearing wedding, the wedding clothes. And it actually says he's cast out into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, I work at a school with uniforms and they think infractions are harsh for not being in dress code. But we don't cast them into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yet. But. <laughs> but. Why the harsh treatment for those who are not dressed for the wedding? Because those wedding clothes are your righteousness. And if you go there with your own righteousness, you're going to be found not able to get into this wedding feast. Because the standard for your righteousness is perfection, isn't it? Be perfect as I am perfect, says the Lord. Be holy as I am holy. Okay, we can't pull that off, now can we? So we need a righteousness that's credited to us or imputed to us. And it can't be just some fictional righteousness. It has to be a righteousness that was actually experienced and lived. But who can meet that standard? Yeah, Jesus met that standard. From the womb to the tomb, he was absolutely perfect, without flaw. When he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days, 
Our righteousness that we're going to get from him is on the line in those moments. He's got to succeed in that wilderness. He's got to succeed when the Pharisees are, are pushing all his buttons. He's got to succeed in all of these ways because he has to earn and deserve a righteousness that qualifies as fulfilling all the law because we can't. And then when he dies on the cross, I know we're told all the time in churches everywhere, he died for your sins, and that's absolutely right. He died for you. But we also have to realize is that he had to live for you. He had to live the life for you that you're incapable of living. And he does it from birth to death. He accomplishes it. So when he's dying on that cross and he says with one of his very last breaths, it is finished, means he did it. He did it. He's not saying it's over, I can't do it anymore. If he wasn't nailed down, I bet you he'd be fist pumping the sky, saying it's finished, did it, it's victory. He lived the life that we can't live, so now he can impute or credit his righteousness to us as we credit and impute our sin to him, only through faith. Through faith, that great exchange happens. How do we not worship him better? How do we not worship him more? Okay, we need to keep these things in view all the time of what he's done, both actively living for us and dying for us. Now, he leaves his father. He leaves his father in heaven to go and get a bride. Now, in the first century, Marriages were prearranged. A father would go seek out a bride for his son. Can you imagine that responsibility? Can you imagine bringing a girl home? It's hard enough for a guy to bring a girl home and hope his parents are, are impressed by her. But imagine a dad bringing a girl home, hoping his son who's going to marry her is impressed with her. Not only that day, but every day until he dies. And that she's impressed with him every day until they, she dies. That's quite a task, correct? It also shows you that love's a choice. It's not just a feeling. You can choose to love people, and that's what you're gonna, you promise to do through your wedding vows. You're not promising to feel any way for the rest of your life. You're promising to choose to love for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, sickness and in health all the time. Those are the promises that you'll make those choices, right? That's why divorce is awful, because you're not choosing what you promised you'd choose. Now, this isn't about that, though. Now, um... A first century wedding, a father would choose a bride for his son, that the son and the bride would be delighted in each other the day they meet till the day they die. It's quite a task. Now, you're called the bridegroom of Christ, and Jesus says he chose you from the beginning of time. Now, why would he choose you? What's he looking for? Somebody that his son delights in today and forevermore. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been chosen. That's who you are. And rightly understood, listen, I'm going to say something big, and I'm just going to say I'm there in my heart, and I, I think you should get there in your heart. What I just said is the answer to alcoholism and drug addiction. There's no need for any of that if you know this love that God is offering all the time. You're not going to need to escape your, sobri your sobriety ever for any reason. If you simply understand that what the Bible's telling you about this divine love that is directly targeted at you and me. All right. Now, first century weddings. 
See, we have to understand the Bible according to the audience's understandings, not according to 21st century America's understandings, correct? It wasn't written to us, it was written to them. And when we learn how they understood it, the Bible's going to really pop for us quite well. So he leaves his father. What about his mother? Well, if you want to turn to John 19 for me, this is one of the more heart-wrenching scenes of the cross. In 19, verse 25, it says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. He leaves his father, he leaves his mother to be joined to his bride forever and ever. All right, verse 25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So now we learn of this nakedness without shame, and that speaks of their purity. It speaks of their purity to have nakedness with no shame. Now when people are inappropriately naked, what, what do old people like me normally say about that? Shame, what'd you say? Oh, ooh. <laughs> I thought you said, yeah, or something. I was, like, was going to get an usher after you there. All right. Ew, okay, listen. We say shame on you, right? We're saying what you lack is shame. You should actually have shame in this instant, and you don't have shame, and you wish shame upon them because shame is a good thing. It actually helps you from doing the dumb things, right? Shame and guilt are actually very positive. Without guilt, you'll do bad stuff. Without shame, you'll do bad stuff. It's like pain. Pain is a very helpful thing because if you put your hand on a stove without pain, then when you pull it off, you have no skin anymore, right? But because of pain, you pull it off with minimal damage, right? So these things are actually designed for our good, even though they're very, very unpleasant. So they now have nakedness with no shame. And you, of course you see that. In, in little children, right? They can run around naked and not care about anything, right? They're fine. But then one day you walk in their bedroom and they're yelling, get out, I'm changing. And you're like, yesterday you were praying around like it was nothing. Now you're yelling at me for this, right? What happened? They lost their innocence. They acquired shame, just like Adam and Eve lost their innocence and they acquired shame. So when children, I'm one of the ones who happen to believe that when children all of a sudden acquire shame, they're the right age to hear about Jesus now, okay? Now that they've acquired shame, uh, they've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so to speak, and now it's time to teach them about Jesus. All right, chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Every sin we commit takes the form of hath God indeed said. You have to compromise the word of God when we sin. Okay? So there's some justification going on in our hearts and minds when we sin saying, did God really say? Or we'll say, did he say he'll forgive? So we, we give ourselves freedom to sin based on that. Now Satan originated that attack, didn't he? Okay? The father of lies begins with kind of a subtle, um, did God really say? Verse 2, 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now that sounds harmless enough, but is it accurate? No. You think they're allowed to touch the fruit? Yeah. They could juggle, they could do whatever they want with the fruit except consume it, right? They're not to eat of it. So now that she's been presented with a half-truth from Satan, now off guard a little bit, she presents a half-truth back, okay? So the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now that's not a half-truth, that's an out-and-out -out lie, isn't it? But why didn't he lead with that? Because she's probably too grounded at the beginning, right? Now the command did not go to Eve, the command only came before Eve was created. Before Eve was created, he told the man, you're not to eat of this tree or you'll die. So what do you think Adam's responsibility was? Communicate that to her, right? Effectively communicate that to her. So he's to effectively communicate that they're not to eat of that one tree. And I would say he should be making them live somewhere that's furthest from the middle of the garden. They should put up red cones or something around that tree everything that you can do to make sure that your family's protected from that, okay? Instead, he's right by her side through this whole thing, correct? Now, some people see it as romantic. You know, oh, my wife's got a curse of death on her. I'm going to join her. It's very Romeo and Juliet-ish, right? And, and they make it out to be a romance. But we're told in Ephesians 5 that the wife is to respect her husband, right? She's to have respect for her husband. So was she respecting what Adam had said? by conversing with this serpent, which people will say, you believe in a talking snake? I'll say, no, how ridiculous. You, I don't believe in talking snakes, do you? I believe in possessed snakes and talking Satans, right? So um, what was this serpent, what was Eve supposed to do here? My husband told me clearly that we have authority over the animal kingdom. We're to rule and subdue the animal kingdom serpent, so you're to leave, right? You're to leave. So she doesn't. Instead, she eats of it and gives it to him, and he eats as well. Now, I don't know how much time passed between her eating the fruit and being under the curse of death and him still being innocent until he eats of the fruit. Five seconds, maybe. Maybe it took a little longer. I don't know. But as we said, Eve's responsibility there was to respect her husband and what he had said to her. What was Adam's responsibility? after she ate the fruit. Again, some people say it's very romantic that he joined her in death. If she's going to die, I'm going to die. But that's not what he was called to do. What he was called to do while he was still innocent was to beg God that the curse of death would fall on him so that she could live. Isn't that how a husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church and was willing to die for her? Right? So they both missed their call, didn't they? All right. Now, so the woman said, I'm sorry, so the serpent said, you will not surely die, for God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So he said, here's what's going to happen if you eat that fruit. You'll be, your eyes will open, and you will know, this is a tree of knowledge, right? You'll know good and evil. <clears throat> so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. 
and now they're both under the curse, right? Now, they're under the curse of death, and Jesus came and said, though you die, you shall live, right? He's saying, I'm going to take that curse off of you, that curse of death. And it's not just a statement he makes. He doesn't just talk the talk. He walks the walk. And what does he do? Well, at the Last Supper, he's going to point at a loaf of bread and say, this is my body broken for you. And then here's the description it gives of his actions. It says he took the bread and ate it and gave it to his apostles who were with him, and they ate. What does this say in Genesis 3? Eve took the fruit, she ate it, she gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. You see Jesus imitating her very actions? He's imitating her very actions because he's reversing the curse. He's reversing the curse of death that the woman brought. And we'll see how he reverses the curse on the man in a moment. Both of their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked. So their eyes are open and they know something. They know that they're naked. So what do they do about that? It says they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So the first thing that they do is they, first they were naked and unashamed, correct? Now they've acquired sin and this intimacy that they had where they could actually be naked and unashamed, now they're starting to hide themselves from each other, aren't they? They're covering themselves from each their spouse is the only audience they got, right? And so from each other, they start to hide themselves from each other. They're trying to cover themselves. And Adam, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So first they hide from each other, and now they're hiding from who? Now they're hiding from God. Now, and this is all coming as a result of eating from the tree that was where? It says in the midst of the garden, right? That term in the midst is a very important term. If you follow that throughout scripture, you'll see significance in things that are in the midst. So here's a tree in the midst of a garden that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it also says that the tree of life is there, correct? The tree of life is there. When we get to the New Testament, we run into two gardens and a tree in the midst of those two gardens. The first garden we come across is the Garden of Gethsemane. The last garden we come across is the garden that contains the tomb of Christ, the garden tomb. In the midst of those two gardens is a tree it's a tree that we call the cross, yet scripture calls it a tree. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, verse 30, Luke writes this. He says, Peter is rebuking the Jews, and he's saying, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. So they refer to the cross as a tree. Why would they do that? because they know what happened to Jesus on that tree is a reflection of what God said would happen to anybody. It's stating what happened to Jesus that the picture of him dying on a cross is telling us about Deuteronomy, that cursed is everybody who hangs on a tree. So the Bible's letting you know that Jesus is cursed on that tree. In fact, Paul will put it more harshly in Romans. He'll say he became 
sin. It didn't say he became a sinner. It said he became sin. The very stench in his father's nostrils, he became on our behalf. So he's cursed and he'll scream out of his abandonment on the cross there when he receives the curse, right? When he becomes a curse, he'll say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a hard moment to relate to. Can you imagine if law enforcement burst into here right now and pulled one of you out and accused you of a murder and put you on trial for murder and you know you're innocent, but the trial comes and some reason the jury comes back with a guilty verdict and you know you didn't do anything and the judge pounds the gavel, pronounces the guilt and then announces you'll receive the penalty of death. How would that feel, being innocent? Now how would it feel if you looked up at that judge in his face and realized it's your dad that did it? That's what Jesus is going through on that cross. Pronounced guilty, worthy of death, says his father. Because he became sin. He's cursed and he's hanging on a tree. And these, that tree that he's hanging on is in the midst of two gardens. And you say, well, which tree is it then? Is it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or is it the tree of life? And the answer is yes. For you and I, it's a tree of life, isn't it? But what is it for Jesus? It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He has to know and experience evil on that tree, doesn't he? He has to experience our evil. He became sin. He became cursed. He didn't scream out when they nailed him to the cross or whipped his back. But when he became sin and his father had to turn his back, that's when you hear him cry out in agony. Because if there's any definition of hell that I think is right, it's simply this. God will never be there. And that's what you have to endure is the full realization of his love and that you'll never be a part of it. If you've ever had a broken heart from a person leaving you, how much worse when you realize God is gone. So, so they hide from God. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Now, isn't God omniscient? So what's with the questions? Just keep that thought for a moment. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you they were naked? Here's an omniscient God with two questions for the man. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? Three questions from an omniscient God. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. The blame game, right? Okay. And who's he blaming? The woman you gave me. Remember when it was just me, God? Everything was perfect. Then you gave me the woman. And literal hell broke out everywhere. Right? He blames the woman too. He blames the woman. The blame game starts. Verse 13, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? How many questions is that now? Four from a God who knows everything, right? Four questions. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Okay, you see the pattern? 
What have you done? It's your guys' fault. Well, what have you done? Serpent's fault. Let's see if the pattern continues with the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, is there any question mark there? No, there's no question for the serpent. It says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So what's with the questions for the man and the woman and not the serpent? There is a redemptive purpose in the questioning. God intends redemption for those that he questions. Those that he doesn't question, there is no redemptive plan. Satan has no redemptive plan. People will say, can't he repent? Can't he repent? Read Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. He's thrown into the lake of fire where the smoke of his torment will rise forever and ever. You'd have to change Revelation if he repented, correct? And doesn't Revelation say, change a word in here and you'll add to yourself the curses of this book? You don't want to change Revelation. Satan's done. He's lost. He's trying to take you to the losing team, isn't he? Okay, he's lost. Now, there's no redemptive purpose for Satan. There is a redemptive purpose in the questioning. And you know that instinctively. You know that instinctively. This is how you've always behaved. You that have children, you're cooking a meal in your kitchen and your five-year-old walks up and says, can I have a cookie? You're going to say, no, we're going to eat in 15 minutes because you love that child and you want him to eat good food first. 15 minutes later, you call him to dinner and he shows up with crumbs on his mouth. Okay? What instinctively comes out of your mouth next? It's going to be a question. Did you take a cookie? Because you have a redemptive purpose in the questioning. It tests the heart, doesn't it? I'd hate to think there's anybody in this room that would see those crumbs on your son's lips and say, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all my children and more than every child in the neighborhood. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And if any of you say, that's what my parents said to me, I am sorry. But that is not the instinct of a parent, is it? There's a redemptive purpose in the questioning. He wants to redeem Adam and Eve. Verse 15. Verse 15 is famously called the Proto-Evangelium. Proto-Evangelium. Proto means first. Evangelium means good news or gospel. This is the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. Say the scholars. I think when I taught Genesis 1 with um, there's, there's darkness and deep and the spirit of God is hovering over the waters and God spoke and said, let there be light. And there was light. I, two weeks ago, we went over that, that that's the gospel, that you walked in darkness, the spirit moved in you, the word was spoken to you and you became the light of the world. So Paul calls you a new creation. You're a new Genesis one. It's the gospel. Okay. We've seen the gospel in Genesis two, even though I didn't mention it to you. Well, I did mention it to you that they, they sow fig leaves, right? So they're working to cover their shame, right? But you're going you're gonna to see that God doesn't accept that. He's going to kill an animal and, and cover them, correct? So something can die in your place. That's the gospel, correct? It's in Genesis 1. It's in Genesis 2. Now here's the third mention of the gospel. So whatever the Latin prefix for three is, that's the evangelium we're on. And what does it say? I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's still talking to the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
there's your gospel again. Because, well, let's start with this. How many of you remember ninth grade biology class? The youngest people in the room, right? Okay. Now, what is biologically wrong about this sentence? Women do not have seed. Men have seed. Women have eggs, correct? Okay. Now this says her seed. Her seed. And if this is a biological inaccuracy, then I'm wasting my time teaching this book because it's not what it says it is, correct? It says it's perfect. And it just talked about the creation of the man and the woman, and now we find that it's got the seed in the wrong gender here. So how do we rescue this from error? The only way this can be rescued from biological error is something absolutely insanely crazy will have to happen like a woman will have to give birth without any seed of man in her. It's the only way to save the text. There has to be a virgin birth. And the Bible paints itself into this corner as early as the third chapter of the entire Bible. And if there's not a woman giving birth as a virgin, then I don't know how to explain her seed at all. This is a marvelous book. Now, the bruising of the head is a fatal wound. The bruising of the heel is just a painful wound. This is speaking of the seed of the virgin will fatally wound the seed of the serpent. Now, who's the seed of the serpent? Well, John the Baptist, while he's baptizing, the Pharisees will show up. And what does he call them? You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? You brood of vipers. Now, this is the beauty of a prophet. He sees these Pharisees. He may have sat in temple listening to them teach before. Who knows? But at some point he realizes they are a brood of vipers. They are the seed of the serpent, meaning they are going to deal Jesus a painful wound. But Jesus will deal them a fatal wound. Because Jesus will say of these Pharisees, you lie because your father is the father of lies. The devil himself, correct? And you are his offspring. You are his seed. You're the seed of the serpent. And Jesus is the seed of the woman. Okay. So Jesus on the cross will deal a fatal wound to Satan, but he will receive a very painful wound of the cross as he does that. Now the curse on the woman, and this is going to be somewhat controversial, but that's the nature of the book, correct? All right, so anyways. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, there's a lot, a lot of theories on this. I'm going to simply tell you the one that, as I consider these theories, this is the one that strikes the most true to me based on biblical faithfulness and observation. Okay? First of all, I'll say this. I like the consideration. When you look at the three parts of her curse, in pain you will bring forth children. Any evidence that that's still alive and well? 
all female voices. Yes. Um, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, before we talk about the rule part, let's talk about these three things. Because some people wonder, why would desire for your husband be a curse? Why would her desiring her husband be a curse? And what will be said is this, and this is what I believe. Because that is the middle curse of these three curses, pain and childbirth, desire for husband, he shall rule over you. The middle one, desire for your husband, is explaining the one that comes before it, and it's explaining the one that comes after it. How does it explain pain and childbirth? Well, there's not many things that you can say, this is going to hurt you really bad, and you have the heart's desire to do it anyways, right? How does a woman have such a great desire to bear children, even though they say it's the greatest pain she'll experience, right? In premarital counseling, I always, always ask the man, how many kids do you want to have? Then I ask the woman, how many kids do you want to have? Because sometimes they discover one of them's thinking one or two, the other's thinking eight or nine, and that becomes a fascinating conversation to have with them, okay? So I ask them that, and I've never once heard a woman say, we ain't having no kids, that stuff hurts. They never take the pain into consideration, only the joy, right? They never take the pain in. Why? Because perhaps that second line is saying, even though childbearing will hurt, you'll still desire your husband. You're not going to say it's not worth it because pregnancy hurts. Your desire for your husband will allow you to bear the pain. In fact, one of the very important teachings in the New Testament is, for the joy of a child being born, a woman forgets all about the pain of childbirth. I've never seen a baby put in a woman's arms and she go, that hurt you son of a gun, right? She forgets all about the pain for the joy. And Paul says, that's a picture of your life on this earth with suffering is not worthy of comparing to the glory that'll be brought to you in the day of Christ Jesus. It's not even worthy to compare. The glory so outweighs the suffering that you'll never mention the suffering because it's so minuscule. And you remember, Paul said that. The guy who got 39 lashes five times, beaten over the head with rods three times, jailed more than any other apostle, bitten by a viper in the hand, says it's not worthy of comparing to the glory that's coming. Okay, now, then they'll say, it also explains he shall rule over you. So they're saying here, what it's referring to is, he's been anointed as head, and that is in both testaments, correct? Both Testaments say the husband is head of the wife, just like Christ is the head of the church. We see that in both Testaments. There's an anointing that goes on a husband to lead. Now, the only time we see this word rule is in the curse, though. So it's part of the curse that his leading looks like ruling. Because Jesus will say, when he has apostles that say, can we sit one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom? And Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I'll drink from? And then he actually says, yeah, you can, but it's not up to me who sits at my right or my left. Because the next time you see Jesus' right and left, guess who's there? Two thieves, one at his right and one at his left. And one of them will make it to the kingdom and one of them won't, right? So he doesn't know quite yet who's fit to sit at his right and his left. Because based on those percentages, only half of those that sit next to him make it, correct? And it becomes a question of this. He'll continue that teaching by saying, we don't lord it over others as the Gentiles do. 
We have a different type of what? Rule. And how is godly rule? He says the greater you want to be, the more you must what? Serve. The less you serve, the less great you are. The more you serve, the greater you are. So the rule for the husband then becomes you love and serve to the point of death for her. So of course in 21st century America, women do not want to hear about the headship of the husband, do they? Listen, I've met tons of Christian women that desire that greatly. It's not lost in Christianity. But they're also wondering, where are these men? Guys, where are these men that lead and, and serve in their responsibility as the head of the household? Okay, you, The Bible says the man's heart is knit together for respect. That's why the woman's command as a wife is to respect her husband. That feeds a man, doesn't it, guys? When he's respected, he's fully functional as a man who now can love in godly ways. And when he loves in godly ways, then he feeds his wife very well with that love because she's knit together to receive love. And when she's loved that way, she's now equipped to have the strength to respect him the way he is. And when he's respected, he has the strength to love her. You see how they feed each other to become better spouses for each other. So I'll often say, if I get calls for counseling and I can't believe what he said, I'll say, what'd you do? Well, no, I'm here to complain about him. I know. But you're supposed to feed him to be stronger, to be a good husband. What happened? And vice versa is true. The reverse is true as well. All right. Now, it also speaks of the desire for the husband. Some will say this, and I think this is true and borne out in Scripture as well, that a woman's heart is not knit together to be a desiring heart. Her heart is knit together to be desired. That's why you don't see very many lingerie shops for guys, okay? They're not, they don't go out and try to dress themselves to be desired, okay? They're the desirer, the female heart's a desiree. So I'll ask my teenage students, I said, if I told you both male and female in this room that two weeks from today you'll actually have a boyfriend or girlfriend, how would you want those two weeks to go down? Do you want to be the pursuer or the pursuee? And universally in 21st century America, every boy says, I'd rather pursue, and every girl says, I want to be pursued. And they actually think the opposite is a little bit creepy. The hearts are there. We're knit together certain ways. Okay? I mean, just look at fashion. If you go to a very formal event, black tie event, Diana and I were in Pennsylvania at a black tie wedding. Okay? And all the guys in their expensive suits. The only flesh you'll see on them is from the wrist down and the neck up, right? And then the clothes kind of box them off, correct? Not so the women, right? You'll see shoulders and arms bare. You'll see backs bare, bit of breasts bared. You'll see slits and dresses so legs become bared. And what's covered on the women is wrapped up pretty tightly to show you the shape, correct? Why? They're, desire, they're, they're desirees. They're to be desired. Okay? Maybe not in such a flaunting fashion, but they're to be desired. It's a man's heart is not the same as a woman's heart, and vice versa. And when we get this masculinity and femininity right, then we're going to start seeing marriages being enjoyed by people because masculine men are attracted to feminine women and vice versa. Masculinity attracts femininity, and femininity attracts masculinity. There's a design behind it all. 
It's designed for our joy and our happiness. And the more we blur the lines and confuse the lines, the more miserable our marriages become because nobody knows what their role is. Nobody knows what they're supposed to be doing. Nobody knows what's politically correct versus biblically correct. And they feel way more pressure to be politically correct than biblically correct. Okay, anyways. Now, I hear you girls. The curse of the man, hurry up, do the curse of the man. All right, okay. <laughs> then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, I usually joke there and say, see, you can't do that, guys. But there's more to the verse, so just. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, quickly turn to chapter 5, verse 29. What did this just say? Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Chapter 5, verse 29, speaking of Noah, says, God called his name Noah, saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands, because the ground which the Lord God has cursed. He brings rescuers, doesn't he? Noah serves as a type of Christ. The very toil that the curse of the ground brought, Noah is to bring rest from that toil. Now, you'll get more on that when we get to chapter 5. <laughs> Curse is a ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall, you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now, from dust we are, that's how we're created, correct? A lot of similarities between chemical composition of our flesh and the chemical composition of the soils of the earth. Not surprising if you believe the Bible, right? Same with the colors of our flesh and the colors of the soils of the earth. Okay, from the darkest, blackest soils to the whitest beaches of sand and all the gamut in between, we see the soils matching the colors of our skin. And I would even suggest to somebody who's somewhat colorblind that it's really all in the brown family, isn't it? We're really dark browns and medium browns and light browns. And if we would go by that, it's a lot harder to have racism, isn't it? It's a lot harder to hate just a darker brown than a lighter brown type of thing. And I had a student do a wonderful thing several years ago when I taught this. In art class, she took this canvas and she glued all the Crayola browns, the whole series of browns, on it. And she took... Um, a lighter and she burnt the tips so that they melted onto the white canvas and it was just this beautiful spectrum of all the different browns and she wrote on the top of it the human race. Not wonderful? All combined in harmony like that? It was really, really neat. I wish I still had it. Now, this says in the curse of the man, when he wants to bring forth bread from the earth, he will do it through the sweat of his brow through thorns and thistles to frustrate his work and in his shameful nakedness. He's shamefully naked. He's going to have to endure the sweat of his brow and the thorns and thistles if he's going to bring forth bread from the earth. Jesus will come in John chapter 6 and say, I am the bread of life. And how does he offer himself as bread for us? 
Well, the only sweaty brow you're going to read about in the New Testament is the sweaty brow of Jesus Christ in Gethsemane. And as he is made shamefully naked on the cross, he didn't have a loincloth. We do that for decency. They stripped him to humiliate them. He's made shamefully naked as Adam. And he's given, he's got the sweaty brow. And then he's given thorns and thistles as a crown to frustrate his work on that cross. And what is he doing through the thorns and the thistles and the sweaty brow and the shameful nakedness? He's bringing himself forth as bread for us. He's undoing the curse of Adam, just like he undid the curse of Eve. It's no wonder they call him the Savior. This is, un, I, think, I think the writers of the Bible were chosen because they were fishermen and shepherds and people like that. So nobody could say, this is just brilliant writing. They would say, it has to be from God. This has to be from God. Because we have talked about so many books of the Bible tonight that are all telling this Genesis story. All telling this Genesis story. Now, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. I find that remarkable because I think if I saw her do something and asked me to do that same thing, and then I saw this entire curse happen, I'm afraid I'd call her mother of the dead. Right? But what does he hear that he says she's mother of all the living? He heard the Proto-Evangelium, didn't he? He heard that it's the seed of the woman that's going to conquer the seed of that serpent, that that serpent's going to have offspring that'll frustrate mankind forever. But the hero and the rescuer is coming from her. Okay? The Bible is not sexist. If anything, it's giving the best parts to the woman. Okay. Now, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So who made the first sacrifice? Who made the last sacrifice? God makes the first and the last sacrifices for us. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they messed up. They're out of the garden. They can't get back in, correct? That is the incredible mercy of God. Why? Because they are sinful now, and they are separated from God, and if they eat of that tree of life, they will live forever separated from God as sinners. So God won't allow that because he has a redemptive plan for the man and the woman, doesn't he? And that redemptive plan will require him to sacrifice his son. Now do you hear John 3.16 clearly? For God so loved the world okay, that he's going to give that son that's why those cherubim are guarding the way to the Garden of Eden, because heaven forbid they eat of the tree of life and live forever separated from God. How bad does he want that not to happen? He'll sacrifice his beloved son for reunion. You see, there's, I think I might have mentioned last week, a principle of first occurrences in the Bible. When's the first time we ever hear of love in the Bible? First time love ever appears in the Bible is Abram, Abram. He says, here I am, Lord. God says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love. 
and sacrifice him to me on the mountain of which I will tell you. It's the first time you ever hear of love. And the principle of first occurrences means that's how we're to understand love throughout the rest of the Bible. So now when we go to the New Testament, we look for that word love. The very first time we see it in Matthew's gospel is at Jesus' baptism. And the voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my son whom I love. What about Mark's gospel? Jesus' baptism, God's voice. This is my son whom I love. Luke's gospel, it's Jesus' baptism. This is my son whom I love. John's gospel. For God so loved not his son, the world, that he gave the son of his love over to be crucified so that his shed blood could cover you and his lived righteousness could be credited to you so that you can walk with him again in paradise. All right. That is what God is asking okay. you to share with the world. So we have time we for, I went a little much. bit long Amen. tonight. Um, Amen. Father, but, uh, we come we'll to take Jesus some questions. Name. Uh, from you Lord, guys, we just and I guess we're going to rotate if there's any that came online Lord. to a live audience give you enough and for, who you are, for the live trying, audience, uh, just raise your hand, you increase you our capacity to understand uh, for the viewers to receive, home, to be humble, and uh, you'll receive a microphone, Lord, and so just to rejoice in who you are. And that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a question here. Uh, this is actually stemming from week number one, Pastor Bill. Uh, the question comes from Genesis 1.16. If God created the two greater lights, the sun and the moon, in Genesis 1.16, on day four of creation, what is the light source from Genesis 1.3 that God spoke into existence? Yeah, I don't know. Um, could be anything. Anything he wanted it to be. Something temporary. He could be the light source. We know he is light. Um, uh, he said, let there be light very, very early on. So whatever that thing was, um, it, all it has to do is be a source of light that allows, with the rotation of the earth, that it'll create an evening and a morning because we get evening and morning from day one on. And then once the sun and the moon come, he doesn't need that source of light anymore. So just that idea is certainly a possibility. And with the very limited capacity of my mind, there could be thousands of other ideas that work well there. Uh, this is one of those situations where you're only given so much. You're given what you need, but you're not given everything, right? So we don't know what that source, I don't know what that source of light is. And if anybody claims they know, they're not getting it from scripture. It's just their own idea as well, right? But um, there was a source of light that created evenings and mornings until the sun and the moon came. Great. How about a question we've got right up here? John, in the third row. Um, so when, it's, when we're created in our image, you know, we were created in, it's a plural, and behold, the man has become like one of us. We obviously recognize that as Father, Son, Spirit, but who do Jews think that is? Yeah, um, well, the Hebrew word is Elohim, which now, okay, this always is a massive can of worms. So um, uh, I don't know how to avoid this not being a can of worms. But um, so for years, I would say it's the Trinity. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's the us in there. Um, but if you, there, there's a great, great book called The Invisible Realm. 
Um, I, I forget how to pronounce the guy's last name. Uh, starts with an H, if that helps. And uh, he's, he's friends with uh, my, my Greek professor from seminary. And he wrote a, the book, Invisible Realm. But in there, it's basically a very in-depth word study of the word Elohim. And he brings up all the situations that Elohim is used in in the Bible. And it's not often used to refer to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It more refers to what this author calls a divine counsel, that there are other divine beings, a part of Yahweh's counsel that he speaks to, um, and you'll see it in various uh, parts of the Bible. The most significant one, I think, that addresses this the most abruptly is in Psalm 80, I want to say 82, but I'm not quite sure. But it, God says this. He says, I have called you all gods, lowercase g, but you shall die like men. Now, who in the world could he possibly be speaking of? Can't be speaking of men because men already die like men, right? And he doesn't ever call us gods, right? So there's some lowercase g gods that exist that are under the Hebrew word Elohim. They're, the word there is Elohim. I've called you all Elohim, but you shall die like men. So this author, and I think he has good reason, says that when you see the worship of Baal and Dagon and gods like that, they're not just idols. They're actual beings that have made themselves known to these people and they're worshiping them. That's why they dig their heels in and build the, make these idols for them and they're willing to sacrifice their children to them and all these things. Those are lowercase g, God's Elohim. And this author will go on to show through scripture that what it would look like as, as you get this, these 70 nations in Genesis 10 that are listed for us, right? And God becomes the God of Israel through Abraham. That these other 69 nations or 70 nations then have these other gods, these fallen gods. They're not good. They're not almighty like Yahweh. He's the head of this divine council. And that's how Elohim is used throughout scripture. So that is what I would say. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Ah, there we go. Psalm 82, verse 6. I have called you all gods, but you shall die like men. Yeah, there's no controversy over Yahweh, our God, being supreme being over all. There's no controversy there. But I think we discredit the possibility of other nations having other gods. And the idea of Israel, and this will probably answer many, many questions if you understand this. Just like God set the Levites apart of the other 11 tribes to be the priestly tribe, right? That's what he's doing with Israel. He's setting Israel apart to be the priestly nation to the other nations, so as before the flood, God was kind of the God of all of the earth, and it doesn't work, right? They, they rebel, they become evil, and he floods the world. Then in Genesis, 10, Genesis 11, they're rebelling against him again with, with Babel, right? It's this global rebellion that's happening. So in Genesis 12, God does a different strategy. He says, I'm going to choose one man to start one nation, and through that one nation, I will give my laws to them, um, I will create a priesthood uh, from the tribe of Levi, 
And as they are the priests of the nation Israel, they're to raise Israel up in holiness so that Israel will be the priest to the nations. And that's how I'm going to reach the world. I'm not going to ask everybody to be holy at once. I'm going to take one man, start one nation, train them up in holiness, and they will minister to the world. They'll be the representation for the world. But it doesn't work through the whole Old Testament. Okay, They fail through the whole Old Testament. So God's last plan is I will do something foolproof. I'll send my son, and he will live that perfect life. And he won't ask anybody to do what he does. He'll say this. Remember he gets asked this question? What's the works of God that we're to do? In other words, how do we become holy? How do we do this thing? And now G the, all the Old Testament answer is going to be, what does the law say? You've got to follow that law. But what does Jesus say? The works of God is for you to believe in the one that God has sent. Isn't that much easier? A lot of people struggle with it, though, don't they? Just with that part. The works of God are for you to believe. So that's how we get the righteousness uh, that, that Jesus got by following all the law. We get it simply by believing in him. So um, I'm sitting here not knowing if I answered the question or not. I don't remember. Oh, the name of the book is The Invisible Realm. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's The Unseen Realm. The Heiser, that's it. Michael Heiser, The Unseen Realm. I got the title wrong. I forgot the author. Other than that, go get the book. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor Bill. We've got uh, question number two from Online Reads. If God created man and woman as a binary on day six, how did he create Eve from Adam's rib? Doesn't that indicate that they were created on different days? Um. So I guess the question is indicating that that's something that there wouldn't have been time in one day to Correct. do both create yes. Adam and then and then Eve. Um, I I don't see why we would assume that. I don't see why we would assume it couldn't be done on the same day. Number one, and number two. Okay, um, you guys are into worms today. This is another whole can of worms. But what we know about time, what we know about time is this that it's affected by gravity and velocity, right? Do we know that? Time is slower in heavy gravity areas in the universe than it is in lighter gravity areas. Do we know that? Okay, if you don't, then you have to distrust me on that, okay? Time is affected by gravity and velocity. Now, when, when the universe began, and before the planets and the galaxies formed, there was no gravity. So time would have been going incredibly faster. In fact, it's estimated to be going a trillion times faster than it's going now. So that would mean what we consider one rotation of the Earth would have been the equivalent in those 24 hours of a trillion rotations of the Earth. And then as galaxies form, and time would slow down and so forth. So we talk about time zones, but there are actually galactical time zones. And our universe has time going at different speeds all the time. In fact, satellites that are orbiting the Earth our clocks are going faster there because of the lighter gravity. So when they affect your GPS, your clock on your GPS, they have to make adjustments for the fact that satellites registering time faster than your car is. So with all of that now, with all of those adjustments in time, what was a day back then? So if they're going, does God have enough time in 24 hours? First of all, I would say, is there anything God can't do, number one? Number two, I think that just might be a reference to our understanding of a 24-hour day when time behaves much more differently. 
one of the fascinating things that Einstein tells us is that if I got into a spaceship and traveled for one hour at the speed of light, when I got back an hour later on my spaceship's clock, you guys would be 40, 50 years older right now. Okay, so time is relative like that. Um, this is the theory of relativity, right? So um, time is a crazy thing like that. So when you ask me about time back in the creation week, we can't assume we're talking the same language. So listen, based on the little bit I just told you, when somebody says to me, are you younger universe or old universe, I always say, I am. Because it depends on what clock you're going by. If you're going by the variable clock that changed speeds throughout time, then it's probably very young, like the Bible says. But if you go by just the time that we're aware of, then it's probably 14 billion years. In fact, there's an astrophysicist who did research on this whole dynamic, and she wasn't a believer until she realized that 10,000 years, according to these two different clocks, could equal 14 and a half billion years. It could be the same thing. It's just two different clocks. And when she realized that we've probably been saying the same thing as the evolutionist the whole time, she, she started putting her trust in the Bible and became a believer. Sarah um, Salmeander, I think. I've been saying names wrong, so it might be Fred Smith for all I know. But I think it's Sarah Salmeander, Dr. Sarah Salmeander, astrophysicist, if you want to look her up. She did uh, research on that, and, and those were some of her conclusions. Okay, can we get a question that isn't a can of worms, please? Yes. Um, in Roman, I mean, in uh, Genesis 3-9, when the Lord God was asking, where are you and uh, why were you hiding? Um, do, do you believe that the Lord knew that Eve was going to eat the apple and that Satan was going to undermine his word and that she was going to talk uh, Adam into eating it as well? Okay, Since so he's all-knowing. Whenever anybody starts a question with, did God know, what do you think I'm going to say? Of course. Yes, he knew. So then your question probably is, then why did he do it yes. this way? Okay. So um, I usually just do this. I'll say, what do you guys think is better, for God to create or not create? Okay. So if better for God to create than not create, then what do you think is better, for God to create humans with free wills or with no free wills? Okay. So that's what this world looks like, right? It's humans with free wills. And that, that free will has us eating apples we're not supposed to eat and looking at things we're not supposed to look at and saying things we're not supposed to say and all that. So I had a student today actually say, I'm not sure it's worth it. I'm not sure he made the right decision. Obviously, she's struggling with faith a little bit. And she has somebody very dear to her that passed away very young. And so she's in her suffering saying, I don't know that it's worth it. There's people that go to hell. Is that really worth it? And I would say, you know what? It doesn't matter what I answer. God has a clear yes. It's worth it to him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, right? So what's the joy set before him? It's us. And he's saying that level of joy is worth it. And the other way of looking at that question is this. Because people go to hell, should they say to us, should, they be able, should, should it be able to be said, because people go to hell, that therefore we should not have joy forever we should not have love forever. We should not have perfection forever because I rejected that. So therefore, you shouldn't experience it. And then people will naturally say, you can tell these conversations happen a lot in my life. Then people will naturally say, but what about people that um, um, 
they're not evil or anything like that. They just don't believe. Well, do you know what the Bible says this? The Bible says God has made himself known to everybody. The Bible says God himself wrote his law in everybody's mind and on everybody's heart, and their conscience bears witness to that. So that nobody that goes to hell does it because of ignorance. They all do it out of their own will. They did not respond, even if they never heard the name of Jesus. Listen, Acts 17 says, everybody lives where they live and when they live there based on the sovereignty of God. He put them there at that time for a reason. And the reason is to seek for God and to find him. So that means people that are born in the bush in Africa 200 years ago were there for what purpose? Seeking God and finding him. So Paul will say in Romans 2, creation is their evangelist. Creation is their witness. Creation bears witness so well that if they reject the witness of creation, that they, how does he word it? Um, they are without excuse. They're without excuse for knowing God because of creation. Now, you have much more revelation of God than that, right? So there's much more responsibility with the much more revelation that you have. But, and, and Paul says that those who never hear of Jesus, he says they're a law unto themselves and their conscience will either accept the things they're doing or reject the things they're doing. Their conscience is telling them you're violating the law of God or you're following the law of God and they will be judged that way, he says this, by the gospel of Christ. It's the same gospel that judges us, judges them. So Paul says it's the same for everybody. It's the same for everybody. So people will then say, invited into my conversations again, then why do we have missionaries? Why bother telling anybody if they all have it? Because listen, what's crystal clear is that everybody's best chance is directly looking them in the eye and telling them you're a sinner and you need a savior. That's everybody's best chance. That's why God himself came to the earth to say it to us, right? Okay. All right. So is that sufficient or do you have more questions? Okay. All right. We will do one more question just for the sake of time. We did go a little bit over this week, uh, but we will end with this question here. Um, the Bible states that we love him, capital H, because he first loved us. So is it okay to say that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil placed in the garden might be one of secret things of the Lord that we will only understand in eternity? Well, Adam and Eve are the one tested by that tree and they're told it's a tree of knowledge and therefore I believe they're expected uh, and, and that knowledge is of good and evil and and the knowledge is not so much a head knowledge as an experiential knowledge. You're going to experience both good and evil if you eat from that tree. So I, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't see it that way. I see it as they're going to be directly consequenced by their experience of good and evil from eating of that tree. So I, I personally don't see that point. Uh, maybe if they um, explained it more and, and unpacked it more, there's something more for me to see, but I don't, I don't see it that way there. Um, you know what's interesting about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the fact that she, they bit from it. Um, you know, I have a, a MacBook and every day all the knowledge that comes through the internet, I'd look at the back of that MacBook and what's lit up on there? An apple that's been bitten from, right? It's an apple that's been bitten from. And what does that 
device do? It gives us tremendous amounts of knowledge, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm just wondering, uh, you're all going to PC now or what? But, uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> how many of you heard my Monster Energy drink talk as well? Yeah, okay. So MacBooks and Monster Energy drink, you just got to watch. Okay. But greater is he who is you and that's in you, that's he is in the world, right? All right. Actually, what I would feel bad doing is if you're sitting right in front of me now and wanted to ask something and we're, we're going to cut it there. So if there's one last question here, Johnny. You're Johnny. Yes. Oh, you need the mic. I thought you were looking for another Johnny. Okay. All right. Gotcha. <laughs> um, how do you uh, tell or speak the truth in love? without like, you know, getting too mad or if you have trouble being like a hothead, you get angry quickly, but you still want to get your point across to somebody and, yeah. you know, you want to be, do it in a loving manner. How do you yeah. express that? Well, I personally think, and I think a lot of people can have different opinions on this, but I personally think that when we become short-tempered and impatient with somebody that we're trying to get through to and they're not getting it, that reaction is from your desire to, to win and to be right. And when you're not winning and they're not acknowledging that you're right, you get frustrated and angry. So I would say it's a call to humility and love. The more humility and love you bring to it, the more patient and less uh, irritated you're gonna be by them. So, um, you know, the debaters that I like to watch the most that uh, I almost never, I almost never, see the atheist side not be snarky and insulting and all of that. But I love seeing these Christian debaters with great patience over the antagonism still just calmly make their points without getting equally snarky with them. And I think that's a great testimony of the work of the Holy Spirit in them that the other one doesn't have going on in them. So, um, I think there's a direct relationship between the impatience that we can get and, and the, the loss of a temper we can get with them is directly related to our flesh still wanting to be right or to win or whatever. And I think if we simply realize it's a life and death thing, we'll find ourselves much more patient and much more kind when we say it's not about convincing them that I'm right, it's about them living forever with Jesus rather than in hell. So I think that'll add great, great patience uh, to fully remind yourself ourselves of that all the time. Okay. All right. Can I pray us out? All right. Thank you, guys. And um, let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we dedicate every word that was spoken uh, to you. And Lord, we pray that most of it was true and accurate and good, if not a great percentage of it and whatever wasn't, Lord, we just trust you to redeem it for your name's sake and uh, just to have us walk out of here understanding exactly the way you would have us to understand. So, Lord, uh, we celebrate you and your great love. Lord, and we just repent of what your love for us has cost you. And, Lord, we pray that we would be more and more like you every single day and that the world would benefit from your work in our lives. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for who you are. Always, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a good night.